Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, we welcome you to join us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions so that Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests can answer them live using hashtag Disrupt TV. We also have, I think, over 160 interviews uh, on our podcasts. So check out our podcast as well on SoundCloud. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He regularly contributes to Forbes, ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and he's one of the best followers on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray. Hey, thanks a lot. And we are doing the live mobile edition here from the New Jersey Turnpike. So I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar, as he mentioned. But he's been too kind. He is the top CIO, top CMO influencer for the last two years. And of course, definitely a big contributor to Huffington Post. And of course, if you haven't seen his book, search for it on Amazon and read it. It is awesome. All right, so who do we have today? We've got another awesome lineup. Who do we start with today? Yeah, so we're going to start the show with an amazing CEO of a startup, Avi Goldberg. He's the chief executive officer of Dispatch. He's a serial entrepreneur. Dispatch is a company in Boston. We'll learn more about Dispatch. Avi is a serial entrepreneur and a proven operational leader with over 15 years of experience building and operating leading technology companies. I had a privilege of going to Dispatch and really firsthand experience the culture of the company and his leadership style. And I got to tell you, it was amazing. He's currently uh, you know, building a Boston-based uh, startup, in an enterprise technology company that's empowering home service industry to meet the rising demand of the modern customer. Again, we'll learn about Dispatch throughout the show. In 2007, Avi co-founded and was the managing partner of Breakpoint Ventures, which focused on the formation, development, and commercialization of promising technologies and ideas of broad spectrum and investment sectors, including biotech, clean tech, telecommunications, material science, and consumer web. He's got deep experience across broad set of technologies and industries. He's founded over 10 companies with his partners, which have seen successful ex exits, and we'll talk about that. So please uh, welcome Avi to uh, Disrupt TV. Hey, how's it going? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Ray, Vala, appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to talk to the, uh, to the audience today. Our pleasure. Hey, no problem, man. Hey, we, lo we love having startup CEOs here. So a hey, question for you, and this is really about just how'd you get to Dispatch? Like, what, what was the business problem that you said, I got to have a solution like, that got you all excited? Right, it's a, it's a great question, and it's something that uh, that you and I and Vala probably experience on a day to day basis. The thing that happened was my washing machine broke. Um, I had I had the same problem that uh, millions of Americans every single day have. I had a was it a Maytag Neptune? It was not. It was a Kenmore. It was a Kenmore. It was a Kenmore washer. But here's what happened. Basically, I had a washing machine that was broken, and a couple of other things had broken in my house, and I was easily able to find a, a service provider to come and fix them. Um, but for whatever reason, I couldn't get uh, my washing machine fixed. I called up Home Depot, which is where I had bought it, and they, I, they said, you're in luck, it's under warranty. So I called up uh, the, OEM, the 
you know, the manufacturer and said, you know, who can come and fix it? They gave me a list of five service providers. I called every single one of them and not surprisingly, nobody called me back. And so I was like, this, this is just unacceptable. If I can, you know, in, in some of the companies that I've been involved in, I've been involved in biotech companies. I, I started a company that converted coal into natural gas. So I said, if I can address or solve those problems, I could address and solve the problem of being able to connect a service pro provider to a homeowner. And so I, you know, like any good entrepreneur at the, you know, in 2013, I decided, you know what, let me create an Uber for home services. Let me try and create a consumer facing application that simply addressed the consumer pain and connected homeowners and service providers. So that was my first foray into, uh, in, into this space. But what I realized along the way was, really hard to build a marketplace and trying to you know displace service providers from homeowners and create a new marketplace I mean we, we obviously know the successes of companies like uber and, and open table but it's really challenging to do and especially in the home services space and so the big pivot for the company after delighting all of my friends with this this dream of building a, an uber for home services was instead of trying to displace them what I decided was it was much better for me to empower them to create you know, the tools and the infrastructure to empower both enterprises and small businesses to help them deliver on, you know, on the, on the, you know, on the on-demand economy to help empower them to compete in the on-demand economy, as opposed to trying to create a marketplace that tried to displace them. That, 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 that's amazing. You know, when I was in your office, uh, again, the vibrancy, the culture, the talent, Everything was, you know, spoke to me. And, and your mission is to help companies apply the concept of on-demand to as many things as possible in their life. So it's, it's, it's winning through convenience. It's winning through empowering brands. What stats, what are some of the things you can share with us regarding dispatch? Like how many, yeah. how many what's the volume of cases and dispatches you yeah. guys do? Give us some scale. Yeah. Give us some yeah. insight in your business. Absolutely. So it's a great question. And, and, you know, when a company first gets started, you don't know you're real until, you know, until you have, you know, volume, if you have jobs going through your system. So we're, we're doing more than 50,000 jobs a day. So we are, our platform is being used thousand jobs a day times a day. There's a homeowner that has a problem. There's a service provider that's going to their home and 50,000 times a day right now. And it's, and, and rising, you know, dramatically every single day. Um, a homeowner is receiving a text message, a notification saying, Hey, your appointment has been scheduled your technician is on his way so we're we are actualizing the vision of the company of, of creating an, a modern service experience an uber like experience for home services without them knowing that dispatches even even exist so we're not displacing you know the the small business or the enterprise that's involved in that consumer interaction what we're doing is we're giving them the tools to be able to deliver that modern service experience for the homeowner Avi, what happens to this scale as homes become smart homes and you've got all these connected internet things that are going to be sending cases and repair requests and replacement requests? I mean, I anticipate in a very near term that 50,000 could be 5 million. Exactly. Exactly. Also, a great question. So. You can have all of these connected devices. You've got lots of products. You've got the Amazon Echo. You've got smart home. You've got smart home devices. You've got wireless thermostats. But when something goes wrong, when something breaks, when the you know when your electric electricity goes out, when your your boiler breaks, who are you going to call? 
right? What is the connective tissue that's going to say that triggers the sensor that says something is wrong? Who's going to come fix it? It's not like you can download some software update over the internet that, that will fix your boiler or fix your, you know, your washing machine. You've got to send a technician out. So it's that handoff from something that's digital to another, to a service provider that actually has to come into your home, has to manage that, you know, that problem has to go there and assess what the problem is. That's where, you know, that, that's where the, the next sort of step of this process comes. You can connect all of the devices you, you possibly want, but they're not going to fix themselves. What you need is you still need service providers and technicians to come to your home and fix those things and help walk you through how to either prevent something from happening in the future or to fix something that, that, that is broken when it's being, you know, when, when it alerts you that something is, is wrong. That's amazing. And so we, we, are, we are really, when we talk about the operating system, when we talk about the scale, you know, it's not like we, we just, you know, give our software to, you know, small businesses or to, you know, to the enterprise companies that we work with and we say, you know, go figure it out. We're working alongside them to make sure that every service appointment that takes place, that the notifications are sent and, you know, on time. I mean, can you imagine if you got a notification from a technician that they're on their way and they're, you know, and, it, and they're at your front door? there's a high degree, there's a high touch that has to take place where we're managing to a service level agreement where notifications have to be sent out, communication has to exist, homeowners need to know, you know, am I waiting at home? Can I go to work? Can I, can I show up when he shows up? All of that communication, it's, the, it's part of that sort of that digital sort of transformation where instead of calling people or waiting for someone at home and, you know, and hoping that they show up, now it's about instant communications and, and being more responsive. And we're enabling that to happen with the, the stakeholders in the service delivery process. So, you know, when you look at a company like Salesforce, where they're managing sort of the first mile of the service delivery process, you know, managing the customer on the CRM side. What dispatch is doing is we are the last mile of the service delivery process. We're making sure that everybody who's involved in the last mile, the service provider, that you know, the technician, the homeowner, all of them are communicating effectively with each other. They're they're in contact with each other. So if anything goes wrong, immediately a notification gets sent out and somebody can come in to troubleshoot. So let me get this straight. You basically are giving people given anyone, like let's say a plumber, uh, a repair person, you know, a contractor, the tools to be able to come in and actually be able to run a business like anyone else is running at the enterprise level. Absolutely. And we're giving it to them for free. We're, what we believe is that instead of selling software to, to small businesses and saying, here's a piece of efficiency software for you to run your business and grow your business and try, you know, pay us $99 a month or whatever, what we're doing is we're saying, we work with all of these large enterprises, these large enterprises that have spent tens of millions of dollars building their brand. And so what we're saying is, is these, these large enterprises have a connection to these small businesses and they're going to send work to those small businesses and they're going to subsidize the distribution of that of that software to those small businesses so we're giving it to them for free so that they can manage all of the work that they're getting from those job sources so now you also have some very interesting information are you so you've got field service management built in here are you doing tms as well transportation management right. so we're not doing transportation we're not doing transportation management we are we're building a mini monopoly inside of the home services space so when you think about it electric electrical plumbing hvac appliance repair all of the core skills that are required to manage your home. So we're collecting all of the data that takes place on the day of service when the technician comes. So it's not only what was the problem, right? But it's also what was the resolution? So all of that becomes our proprietary kind of information around how do you resolve a problem? Maybe you don't send a technician. Maybe the call center agent can just, you know, tell the homeowner what to do, flip a switch, reboot, you know, it's something as simple as that. But that's what we're trying to do is help create efficiencies around that last mile. You're basically populating a knowledge base over time. Hopefully that knowledge base gets used in different ways to actually improve service delivery. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you can, if you send the right person with the right part at the right time in the right geo with the right skill set and the right performance, you'll always win. You'll manage and you'll exceed customer expectation. And it's one of the reasons why you really can't yet have an Uber for home services because in the, in the world of transportation, it doesn't matter to you who shows up to your front door and takes you from point A to point B. They just, you just need to make sure that they get there immediately. But if you press a button and a service provider comes immediately, it's likely that he's not the right person because he probably doesn't have the right part. He probably doesn't have the right skill set. And if he's available, he's definitely not the right person because all, all, all of the good All the good, all the good ones are busy. That's all exactly the good ones right. are busy. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're democratizing service logistics in the same way that you don't care how a package gets to your front door. In the services space, you have to lay the infrastructure there first to enable this experience. And over time, you'll be able to get to that point. And that's what we're doing. So, so with 50,000 dispatchers per day, you're collecting a ton of data. Yeah. You're collecting yeah. equipment data, consumer data, service provider data. What type of business model, model, model innovation or new products and services can you imagine a couple of years from now, given this enormous amount of data that you guys are capturing? It's really about, when I think about what we're doing for certain companies, it's not about the dispatch brand. It's really about empowering and helping to preserve you know, the enterprise brand. So the companies that we're working with, one of our, our key strategic partners is ServiceMaster. So what's amazing about that company is they're the largest home services company in the country. They have some of the largest, most recognizable brands in, in the world, Terminex, Merrymade. What I'm doing with the data is I'm helping them grow and preserve their businesses at the enterprise level. But at the same time, that the information that we're collecting is helping to grow and build small businesses. So we're all about empowering small companies and large enterprises to, to, to grow their businesses as opposed to, again, as I said, displacing them and trying to create a marketplace that says, oh, you have to come to dispatch in order to connect with them. What I'm saying is, is I'm going to give them the tools. So all of the data and the performance information and that, that knowledge base that we're creating is all going to help grow and nurture and preserve the businesses that have literally spent tens of millions of dollars in years building up um, their brand. This is really cool. Okay, so now we've got a network, we've got a whole bunch of folks empowered. Uh, now you've got data and analysis and insights. Um, do you do ratings? Are you yes, going to get do. into that business? Absolutely. So we are in there. So we're not, it's not that, we, it's not like we're getting into the business. We, we are that business because at the end of an appointment, you get a text message that says, rate and review your service provider. If it's a five star, Immediately, that review will go to Google or to Yelp or to Facebook, wherever it is you want to send it. If it's a one to three star, we immediately send it back to the technician or the company or even the enterprise and say, hey, there's a problem. So you get immediate notifications back so that you can, you can create a, an experience for a homeowner where if there's a problem, we know about it right away. Wow. Do you get, are you also doing live BBB feeds as well? A Better Business Bureau feeds? Uh, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. We've got not to get yet. them to our phone calls. Not yet. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, this is cool. So how many employees? Who's, who's, what do you have right so now? So we have 50 employees in Boston. Um, we really thought that in order to build our culture and Vala came by and, and, and visited with us. And of course, Ray, we'd love to, we'd love to host you as well. But um, we've got, you know, a great team in Boston that is uh, dedicated to the mission. It's not just, again, you know, when I think about when I walk people through the office and Vala, you know, can attest to this, it's that, you know, there are people in our company that, that really believe in the mission. It's not, again, about building software that, you know, that just makes a company more efficient. We're really growing and preserving brands and it's so empowering when you can see a business grow there's there are a couple of companies we've got these big pictures of, of, of uh, service providers on the wall companies where you know there was one guy in a truck and now he's got 10 people um, a person whose child was sick at home and he had to spend more time with him and he was able to grow his business now he has three franchises I mean that's what gets me up every single day 
you know, seeing those yeah, success stories on our software. The day I was at Dispatch, they had a lunch and learn session. And before their mobility architect got up to try to educate the entire team, the rationale they used to justify a roadmap and accept enhancement requests and bug fixes and this, that, and the other. I felt that the importance of explaining the why to everyone in the organization was really powerful. And uh, you know, when, when Avi asked, raise your hand if you just started in the last month, to see five, six, seven people raising their hand, you know, there's growth, there's vibrancy, I loved it. So my, leads to my question, you founded 10 companies, you've sold many of them successfully, and now you're again leading a, a rising star in the startup world. What advice do you have to other entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting a, a, a company or they're in the process of managing a startup? Yeah, so I think it's a, Val, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, there are ingredients to success in it, you know, so I've been a, a nine-time COO, a chief operating officer, and this is my first uh, gig as a CEO. And I think that every company that I've ever been involved in starting has sort of three principles, they, they, what I would classify as the cornerstones of, of any business that you, you start. You have to have, you know, you have to be operating in, an, in a very large market. You have to have, you know, a technology or something that differentiates you from, from everything else that's out there. And you need to have an incredible team. And so taking an idea that's just an idea, it's like everybody says to you, wouldn't it be great if dot, 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 how do you go from just an idea to executing on it? You need to have the right team, you need to have the right technology, you need to be in the right market. And if you could tell that story, if you can take that, it can, you can replicate that model in every single company that you have. If any one of those, those pieces are broken or if, if, there's, if, if, if they're weak in any way, then you can't tell that story. You can't get people excited about the business that you're in. And if you can't get people excited, you can't raise money and then you can't, you're going to have a difficult time either getting customers or getting investors. And I think those are the things that are really, really important. And in all the businesses that I've learned, you need to have those those ingredients uh, in order to uh, successfully execute on your business. That's awesome. I thought you were going to say hire a great COO, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, for nine out of ten, that was true. So <laughs> nine out of ten, they had a great COO. So I tell this you, is awesome. We are um, here with Avi Goldberg, founder and CEO of Dispatch, and you can follow him at Dispatch CEO and uh, check out the new world of field service management and the democratization of tech and business models. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, and uh, welcome to the Alumni Club. Yes, my thanks, pleasure. So. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Ray, I love the startup CEOs that come on our show. And you can tell the common ingredient amongst all of them is their passion, their inspiration. Passion. And, and really, the, their goal is to, to, to serve. Uh, that servant leadership is clear, clearly present when you, when you meet and speak with, uh, with Avi. So we're, we're delighted that he was, he was on our show. All right, we're hopefully able to uh, now have Scott Hartley. Uh, we got to get you off mute, Scott. Uh, can you? Can you guys hear me better now? All right, All right. look at that. All right, hey, we're in business. We're delighted. Ray and I are really super pumped about having Scott Hartley. He's a venture capitalist and he's an author of an incredible new book that we're going to talk about. Uh, he's, he's been a startup advisor. He's been, he has been an investment partner on Sand Hill Road. He worked at Google, he worked at Facebook, and Harvard's uh, Berkman Center for Internet and Society. He's written for Inc., he's contributed to Boston Review, Foreign Policy, and many other publications. His new book is called The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. Now, I'm a double E, I think Ray is chemical or mechanical engineer, so we're really interested in understanding yeah. the fuzzy. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll balance it out as a as a political theory. Yeah, uh, we're looking at my natural yeah. sciences degree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a must follow on Twitter. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott E Hartley H A R T L E Y. Welcome, uh, Scott, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Vala. Thanks, Ray. Really great to hey, be welcome. on. Welcome. And have so, audio too. <laughs> and have audio. Well, it turns out that mobile seems to work better than anything else at this moment. Apparently, I, I just got to be no able idea to why. So, but uh, <laughs> but hey, you know, look, the fuzzy and the techie. What was the driving factor? What 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 made you say I gotta write a book? People have to know about this. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, I really found you know in venture sitting at, I was a as a partner at More David Ventures on Sand Hill, and you know basically meeting with companies day in and day out, you're bombarded by these different ideas, and you try to coalesce you know where is innovation moving, where is it going, and for me that process of trying to put my finger on the pulse of what was happening was writing because it forced me to be somewhat accountable to myself and accountable to the public of saying, you know, if we're talking about IOT or we're talking about a specific domain, here's what I actually think the market's going. Here's, you know, given 10 data points or 20 data points where I think innovations may be moving. And so the writing was really a way to crystallize my own thinking. And then it sort of evolved from, you know, short form articles to longer form articles to having this sort of overwhelming observation that, you know, the narrative of the Vinod Koslas and the Mark Andreessen's that, you know, if you have soft skills, you're doomed. If you've got a liberal arts degree, there's no hope for you. Um, really, you know, day in and day out, uh, we were meeting with, you know, entrepreneurs coming out of all these different walks of life, uh, people coming from theater arts majors and economics and, you know, and sociology and, and, and really the overwhelming observation I had was it had to do with the problem they were solving, the methodology that they had, you know, and were applying um, their charisma and ability to build a team around them and, you know, go after a market. And, and all those things were so important more than just the computer science degree or just the, you know, engineering degree. And so, um, yeah, I, I felt compelled to write the book just to sort of myth bust this notion that Silicon Valley is a monolith of only techies. Uh, and I think that was partially determined because I, you know, myself was a political science guy. I, I studied a grad degree in international relations. My whole extended family, you know, in places like Boise, Idaho and Denver, Colorado, they said, well, what the heck do you do at Google? You know, I thought Google was only engineers. How do you work there? And so I think, you know, the broader narrative outside of our sort of insular environments in Silicon Valley and Boston and New York, are, you know, it's, it's that Silicon Valley is run by techies. It's, uh, it's, it's this sort of monolithic culture where if you didn't drop out of middle school and, you know, and, and know how to write Ruby on Rails, uh, there's no sort of hope for you to, to start a company. And, you know, increasingly, I think that tools have been democratized in such a way that the building blocks are getting bigger and bigger. And it's more important that you're kind of a full stack integrator and you know where the building blocks are, then you have maybe the, the ability yourself to code, you know, full stack all the way. Um, you know, if you can kind of point out, like, I, I want to use TensorFlow for this machine learning stuff, and I want to use this, you know, certain building block for, for something else, uh, you know, those are sort of the skills of the CEO. And, and, and I think a lot of the visionaries that create these great companies have the ability to kind of put together the team and, and, and tell the story in the right way. That's awesome. You know, I, I often tell, talk to Ray about how much I struggle with writing. Having said that, I think I've written 50, 60 HuffPo articles this year alone. Yeah. But for me, it's like a root canal process. <laughs> now, and I feel great after I'm done, but the whole process is incredibly painful. But as a double E, undergrad and grad, I wish if I could go back in time, I would read more and write more versus all the circuit theory classes and math courses and physics and this, that, and the other. 
So I definitely, so I, my advice to my three children now is read as much as you can, write as much as you can, because it's going to be critically important no matter what track and career and industry you go that you can communicate your thoughts effectively and you're accurate and concise. So if the liberal arts uh, helps you train to be more flexible, more empathetic, and, and, and be more creative in terms of problem solving, what advice do you have for parents, students, teachers, as a Silicon yeah. Valley prominent you know, VC? What should we be doing differently or thinking about? You know, I, I had a great conversation with uh, one of the provosts at Stanford University a couple weeks back. And he has this great metaphor of, uh, you know, basically students these days and parents, I think, as well, think of this ballistic path where you're kind of launched like a missile from point A to point B. And once you're in the air, you have very little ability to sort of navigate along the way. You're kind of launching toward that dream job as a product manager at Facebook. And you think, OK, the only way to get there is to launch off the EE or CS launching pad and go in that direction for the next four years. And uh, his metaphor, which I really like, is thinking about education not as a plane ticket from point A to point B, um, but thinking about it as a passport where you're trying to get stamps from all these different places. And so, you know, if you're really passionate about double E and CS, that's great. Um, but you should also take a philosophy class. You should also take, you know, a class in international relations. Uh, take that class that forces you to write the 20 page paper that scares you, right? And, you know, for someone like me that, uh, you know, I, I don't struggle as much with the writing parts, but to do a problem set that you know may take you an hour would take me all day. And so, you know, really to force yourself out of your comfort zone, um, I think that's sort of the thing is collect the stamps from all the different geographies and try to touch all these different geographies and backgrounds and methodologies. Because um, I don't know if you guys saw, there was a great post in Quartz a few days back by one of the earliest engineers at both Pinterest and Quora, a woman named Tracy Chow. And she made this great point that some of the earliest decisions in product direction for Quora, for example, were these philosophical decisions of, are people inherently good or are they inherently bad? Because if they're bad, we have to set up all these cues to basically moderate content. If we assume that they're good, we allow them to post directly to the site. And these are kind of fundamental design decisions at the very outset of product development where the PMs and engineers were asking these broadly philosophical questions, looking around the room and said, you know, unfortunately none of us took a philosophy class or we maybe would have more insight into some of these decisions or, you know, even on the, on the content moderation side of things, uh, cap should they capitalize and, and make sure punctuation and spelling is correct? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you take a metaphor from sort of urban sociology or criminology, the broken windows, phenomenon of if you fix the broken windows, people start acting in more, uh, you know, more in line, you know, in, in good behavior, proper behavior. And similarly on Wikipedia, similarly on Quora, I think, you know, some of these principles where you take something that worked in urban uh, New York City to clean up, you know, parts of New York City, it'll work the same way in an online context. And so some of those uh, kind of abstract metaphors where, you know, take somebody studying sociology or having that inkling uh, to provide that insight in a product meeting, in an engine meeting. Um, so I, you know, I think if you can have people that have these broad passports of experiences, um, they're going to be more productive, whether they're an engineer or they're somebody from the liberal arts. Awesome analogy. No, that's a great analogy. We're here talking to the Financial Times Business Book of the Month author, Scott Hartley. <laughs> And we are uh, talking about really the edges of really what's happening. So what you're also talking about here is, is really the fact that, you know, we're seeing folks need to connect across different dots. You know, at Constellation, one of the things that we use is we use a PESTO methodology for a futurist framework to connecting politics, economics, society, environment, 
technology, legislative forces. And what we try to do is bring that together because it's those larger pictures and connecting those dots. Have you seen folks go from techie to fuzzy and fuzzy and techie back? Like, like isn't Andreessen really a philosopher these days? You know, it's a, that's a great question because, uh, you know, I, I would say that guys like, like, like Vinod Kosla and, and Mark Andreessen have become, you know, Vinod just a, wants me to keep me off his property. That's a different problem. <laughs> I, I respect his property rights. His you know. beach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know we all like Half Moon Bay, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think that is true. And, and increasingly as tech, you know, Mark Andreessen talks about software eating the world. And I think the flip of that is you know software is feeding the world in the in the sense that we have to have people from all these different domains and expertise and background contributing now uh, providing the problems to tech because you know I think Kara Swisher from from Recode she had this great quote about San Francisco entrepreneurs and she said it's basically assisted living for millennials they're basically trying to replicate every service that their mother once provided and now is not providing so you know you want you want laundry delivered you want food delivered you want dogs you know walked by mom themselves is mom is a service mom is a service snowflakes is a service man it's snowflakes is a service come on grow some grit no no but it's, it's a great point it's a great point i mean all these things are being built around these edges and and it's a question of like how do we see that broader picture so okay so fuzzies become techies can and techies can become fuzzies um does that call for a different type of education? People keep talking about STEM. Should we move to STEAM? You know, STEAM is great. Um, I think I was talking to a, a PhD classicist from, from Yale yesterday morning who sort of maneuvered his way into tech. And he delivers lectures on how Hannibal was the original sort of startup general with very limited resources. <laughs> he was able to nearly conquer the Roman Empire. Uh, he's, he's delivered uh, inside sales lectures on like Roman rhetoric and, and what Cicero did to convey, you know, to, to create sort of dust in the eyes of the jury to, con you know, convict somebody of a crime. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I think there are all these learnings that can kind of cross over. Um, I, in the book, I talk a little bit about Steve Blank uh, in one of the courses that he's rolled out uh, at, at Stanford, but now it's rolled out across 13 or 14 different universities. And what they've done is they've taken the problems from uh, Department of Defense and from USAID and from the State Department, and they've gone out to all these different you know, military groups, parts of, the, parts of you know, diplomacy, and they've said, what are your most intractable problems you guys can't figure out how to solve? And let's, let's export those problems to Silicon Valley. Let's create teams of, of political scientists and engineers working together um, to try to solve these problems over 10-week sprints. And so, you know, in the quarter system, they, you know, basically the class, they bring the problems from sort of private sector, from people that really understand these domains, and then they're creating these sort of synthesized uh, fuzzy techie teams, if you will, uh, you know, to try, to try to hack against those, those problem sets. And I think, you know, we could do the same from agriculture, we could do the same from a lot of different Industries, but I think you know, STEAM is an interesting example of that. Um, so somebody else told me an acronym called HEAT, which was, yep. uh, you know, it's sort of uh, bringing together. I can't remember all the all the different uh, term terms behind HEAT, but you know, I think there there are other ways that we could sort of connect the dots uh, and make sure that people have all the different stamps from from these various sort of backgrounds and worlds in their passport by the time they graduate. Um, I, you know, the, in the follow up to that, I think we have to start thinking about. Uh, a degree title, if a slip of paper says computer science or it says anthropology, it's not as if one is, you know, got this carte blanche to relevance forever. 
because as you know, you know, in computer science, the languages are changing every few years. You constantly have to be upskilling, you know, considering the newest, uh, newest uh, domains and, and form factors that people are building for. Um, and same with the anthropologist, you know, that you can't just study that and pretend that the internet doesn't exist. You know, you got to upskill in some of the tech literacy as well. So I think thinking about education, not as a four-year degree, but as, um, you know, as, as sort of, that, that's the entry point. But then we all have to continually use things like Treehouse and General Assembly and Codecademy and, you know, and, and Coursera and Udacity and all these great platforms um, that fortunately most of them are free. Most of them provide, you know, great, uh, great coursework uh, that's pretty accessible regardless of kind of socioeconomic background. Um, and so, you know, thinking about how do we provide those bigger opportunities for people to continue to upskill and continue to sort of invest in their education, not just graduate in four years and pretend like now I'm a college educated person, I therefore am entitled to, you know, this for the rest of my life, even though the world changes dramatically. Sure, sure. So Scott, 10 years ago, if you looked at the, the 10 largest companies by market cap, there was only one tech company. And today, I think there's seven. Starting, you know, with Apple and Alphabet and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook and Tennyson and so on and so forth. So data is behind a common thread with all these most valuable companies in the world. It's like the new oil, some people say. And that leads to algorithms. And that leads to this incredible surge we have seen in machine learning, deep learning, natural language processing, and all the data scientists under this AI umbrella. So as we see this blended world of machines and people, and we see this accelerated path of going from uh, augmenting intelligence to autonomous intelligence, you would think the fuzzy part is going to be critically important because you also have this need to balance transparency and how these algorithms are going to drive decisions without human input, potentially. Uh, so what are your thoughts in terms of the importance of the fuzzy continuing to grow even more so in this AI digital economy that we're a part of? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think part of the other impetus for the book was this sort of drumbeat of, of STEM education being the only sort of relevant education for the future. And I'm not disputing, you know, by any means the need for technical literacy and engagement with these tools. But I think exactly as you say, they really beg uh, these broader questions as well. You know, just because something is put into ones and zeros, just because it's transcribed into something we call an algorithm or we, sh we throw machine learning against it doesn't suddenly make it objective. You know, if you look at inside an algorithm, all the sort of probabilistic determinations, the sensitivities uh, that the engineer decides, you know, many of these things are, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're malleable and they're sort of subjective based on the team that's, uh, that's providing them. And so I think, you know, the bigger questions of who's in the room, how do we create sort of a plurality of methodology and, and background uh, to, you know, interestingly with, uh, with this woman, Tracy Chow, we did a panel with uh, Kevin Delaney from Quartz uh, this past Monday. And she, she said, you know, oftentimes it's, it's marginalized communities uh, you know, whether it's, uh, it's an LGBT, uh, LG, um, BT community, or it's, you know, it's, it's a woman in tech or it's a minority, you know, in tech, uh, who is squarely in the quote unquote edge case for a particular, uh, you know, a particular technology that makes the case for the product team to actually deal with that. So she said, you know, at Quora and at places, uh, like Pinterest where there could be something, uh, you know, that's malicious content. It's, it was generally the person that was most affected by that content that brought it to the surface and made it a priority on the product roadmap. So it really kind of shows that, you know, we've got to build these pluralistic teams, you know, not just based on background, but also based on, you know, all for, forms of diversity because those, uh, those inputs really, you know, 
prioritize the roadmap. And those, those are, you know, how we make these most important decisions uh, in our products going forward. So, you know, as you say, as, as tech becomes something that touches all these different domains from, you know, the Tesla car once was called a car company. Now it's a tech company, right? And, you know, we see this across every different world. Pretty soon, you know, a John Deere tractor is going to be a tech company, not an ag company. Um, and so, you know, we've got, we've got to have this kind of plurality of backgrounds and inputs uh, to make sure that the data and algorithms and things that are just baked into these black box, you know, uh, tech, uh, you know, something that's summarized as, you know, uniformly techy is, is still has the sort of human inputs behind it. As, as just, just the ethics of autonomous cars and the decisions that the algorithm might have to make in scenarios where it could potentially be life and death, the driver or, you know, the, the traffic. It's, it's fascinating how you, you know, resolve those complex scenarios. It is. Hey, and, uh, you know, we're, we're here with the uh, finalists for the 2016 Financial Times McKinsey Brackenbauer Prize. So tell me, who are, what are some of the cool fuzzy techie combos that didn't make the book, but if you had to write it again, it would be in the book right now? You know, it's, it's a great question because a book, a book like any startup, you know, it has all sorts of things on the cutting room floor. You start and you start going one direction. Trust and, me, it sucks. By the time the book comes out two years later, you're like, oh, I wish I wrote about that. So what, what, would, yeah. what would you add? What would you add in there? So uh, one, one company uh, that, I, that I love that, that didn't, didn't make the book, but I, I wrote, you know, significant uh, portions about was somebody who used to work for Vinod Kosla. His name is uh, Shoeb Makani. And Shoaib uh, is a political science major from London School of Economics. He's a Pakistani-American guy from Texas uh, who worked for Vinod uh, and then left to start a trucking company. It probably the most unsexy thing you could have done in 2013, right? And uh, he left because he had an understanding of the way regulation was going to change. And I think he, uh, he saw this opportunity for interim technology that wasn't, you know, the self-driving truck that may be on the roads in five or 10 years. But what he saw in the, in the, in the interim was, uh, you know, a need for electronic logging devices on engines that could report sort of when a truck was, uh, you know, according to, to regulation and, dr and the driver was sleeping or the driver was awake, when the truck was loaded, when it was unloaded. And so he saw this confluence of regulatory change, uh, decreasing sensors, and uh, and built a company that uh, is you know doing incredibly well. Uh, he was somebody that sort of had a passion uh, through his family, uh, understood trucking, sort of saw the big size of the market. Um, and you know I think when people all questioned why are you leaving you know a Sand Hill Road venture capital firm working for a billionaire to start a trucking company, he really had the foresight to say you know this is something that's changing big time over the next five five or so years, and basically skated into a ch a, a change in regulation that. It, you know, has put him in pole position to, I think, own this market for the foreseeable future until, you know, maybe eventually we'll get to self-driving trucks. But I think in the, in the interim, Shoaib is going to win. So, Yeah, no, he's got the number one ELD solution and uh, keep trucking. So definitely a very cool startup that we kind of, trust me, I look at some interesting startups. He was on my list. So that's awesome. Hey, this is wonderful. Yeah. We are following Scott Hartley. You can follow him at S-C-O-T-T-E-H-A-R-T-L-E-Y. Um, former Sand Hill, invest, Sand Hill Road investor, now turned author, now turned actually very, very cool, fuzzy philosopher and tech <laughs> conduit. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks, guys. This is great. Really terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Awesome. Oh, my God. And, and, and what else to top off today? Our awesome producers <laughs> lined us up with some of the most awesome people. I feel so fuzzy now. 
<laughs> your car looks like my car. What's going on here? No, it's gonna. <laughs> we expect we expect a lot of fuzziness in the next segment. No, no. <laughs> well, you know, I'm kind of like that's what I've been telling my students at Temple. The same thing. I'm like, take an anthropology class. Take other stuff. Absolutely, and, and and that's exactly what I'm telling my three kids. So, yeah, it's our pleasure to. This is our cleanup hitter spot. And we have our first ballot Hall of Fame to Disrupt TV show as our next guest, Larry Digman, editor-in-chief of ZDNet uh, and, and Smart Planet, as well as editorial director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. He's been covering technology since 1995, publishing Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and many more. And you can follow, he's a must-follow on Twitter at L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Welcome, Larry, to Disrupt TV. Where are you? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> been Delaware on the way to Rehoboth Beach and have my smartphone just kind of balanced on the steering wheels so hopefully it doesn't fall over in the next 20 minutes or so. <laughs> That's, That's the awesome. goal. Well, hey, we're car to car here today. It's amazing. Another mobile version of Disrupt TV. So lots of stuff this week for a summer. What the heck was going on news-wise? Where do you want to start? You want to, you want to go with Prime Day? Do you want to go with uh, Infor, Verizon? I mean, it's been crazy. Oh, uh, let's let's do Prime Day because I got a little wound up here because you do Prime Day, it's a big sale, everything's going on. You know it's about the customer data, getting prime subscribers, all that. But what really annoys me now is everything Amazon does we think is gonna conquer whatever they're doing. Whatever industry, whatever. Ever since they bought Whole Foods, we're all smoking crack. They're gonna kill Walmart. <laughs> They're going to destroy every destroy software Apple. cloud company on the planet. Apple, right? With Echo. Yeah. I mean, it's it's too much. Enough. I mean, it's... Well, okay. They, Amazon's kicked ass, right? But we all seen this movie before, or at least I have because I'm old. But Microsoft. Remember, they stand in all these categories, and we were like, ooh, they're going to kill company XYZ. No. Does anybody use Skype anymore? Eh, here and there. They screwed up the design. Yeah, oh, God, mobile Skype so sucks so bad. I've never seen so many reviews about mobile Skype sucking. Oh, my God. The new Skype is well, horrible. That, don't get me wound up on Skype for business. That thing's never worked every time I've tried it. But I digress. So that was going to be a category killer, right? Whether it's Microsoft, Google, you know, like, I don't know. Are we flying Google drones around? Are we in our, are we in their autonomous cars? Now they've done good work. Well, it's a science project for now, right? Um... You know, has Google done a ton beyond, as far as making money that falls out of the sky, beyond the ad model, it's still the ad model. Um, so when you look at this, it's, you know, I guess even back in the day, we probably talked about IBM entering new categories and someone's going to get run, run over. That didn't happen either, right? So I just look at Amazon and I go, and, and this isn't Amazon's doing, it, it's media people who can't cook up another storyline, right? Media people. <laughs> It's clickbait. It's people. clickbait. <laughs> yeah, but, but I am one, but they annoy me. <laughs> but Latin, you, you, would anybody imagine five years ago that Netflix's biggest competitor would be Amazon? Uh, they're getting into video content. Nah. You wrote in your article that they've got they've gotten into content and video in both physical and digital and advertising and hardware and of course the Whole Foods, as you noted in your article, accelerates this media's notion that watch out when Amazon gets into a market. They're going to crush you. Um, 
My guess is we should amend that to they're going to do well. <laughs> I don't think they're going to cry. That doesn't make a right? headline, I mean, Larry. Look, that doesn't make a headline. I, uh, you look at you look at Goldman Sachs today. They upgraded uh, Walmart. And you look at some of the things Walmart's doing with the jet acquisition. They're moving faster. And yeah. you look at you look at like Amazon bought Whole Foods, and combined they'll have what three percent of the grocery market. Walmart's the big dog, and will remain the big dog in the foreseeable future. Right? Best case, we get to a duopoly or something. Um, okay. Now there'll be a lot of retail collateral damage, but I that some of these retailers were idiots in the first place. And kind of got what they had coming to them. So hey, they got a they got a great new CIO, Clay Johnson. So so they're definitely uh, cleaning stuff up as well and, and and getting stuff built. But but here's what I don't get, Larry. Think about this. People spent people spent like fifteen bucks to buy an Echo Dot so that that Echo Dot could cause them to buy more crap that they don't want and have Amazon listening into their household. A billion in one day. <laughs> That's the beauty of the model. Actually, the real thing with Echo Dot. They paid 15 bucks to be annoyed because it won't stay connected to Wi-Fi. <laughs> Drives me crazy. All right, let's move on to Wendy. I've had more problems with the Echo Dot. It's cheaper for a reason. I wound up buying another Echo for 79 bucks. I'm like, I'm in. But <laughs> you're, you're, you're the, the cross-sell. You're the reason they got all those Prime members to buy again. And I tell you, all those Whole Food, Whole Food buyers... That's the demographic that's going to have an echo in their house. And now you've got access to all this, you know, upper scale, you know, shopping consumer demographic. And uh, it's going to, it's good. I, I, that's the, I think that's the magic that will hopefully. Uh, that's a great point, Val. Great data. There's great data there. So Yeah, it, it, it's great data. It's the other point we're missing though. I think they had to buy Whole Foods because they need a physical presence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they just built they just build out one right so I think that's that's another key point to add in but my whole take is that okay Amazon's not gonna destroy every category it enters yeah and well, actually, to think they are is a little great but one of my good friends in retail up there uh, he, he basically pointed out something to me a few weeks ago that in the history of retail no one very few people have made omni-channel work and companies that have tried to go digital and physical at the same time have lost a trillion dollars in the market over the last 10 years of market cap value. So uh, yeah. if that gives you anything to worry about. But let's talk about Wendy's. That or a really bad, that's a really bad commercial for all those people pitching Omnichannel. It is a horrible commercial. <laughs> and, and it's sadly true. So, um, all that money spent on software for that. So, so Wendy's are one thing. Fast food now, Wendy's. Fast food? Or HR software, which one do you want to go? <laughs> uh, let's do Workday. All right. Workday is opening their platform. Woo! Wow. Break out the champagne. <laughs> Woo hoo. Um, nice move. Totally get it. Don't quite buy the blog post where they're like, you know, well, we had to, we kept it closed because, you know, we had to get it right. And I buy some of that. Um, I think the reality, though, is all these clouds are connecting together. And if you, don't allow other things to connect to it and you're all closed you're you're really you're kind of screwed over time right because i just don't think people are into the monolithic cloud stack or or if so and, and you look at companies like service now right they kind of went the platform route and people are using hr for they're using service now for some hr tools they they're are. using service now for other things than it 
That's what the word game really It was saying. a competitive risk if they didn't do it, is what you noted in your article. And you also noted that customers, as you said, are increasingly integrating uh, using third-party apps in the mix and matching different clouds. So this was this had to happen, essentially, is your thesis. It's definitely a lesson. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a nice move, but it's also a defensive one. And a we'll see where it goes. I agree with Larry. Yeah. It's a lesson learned from previous companies that both Anil and Dave had founded, that when they had closed out their ecosystem, made things very proprietary, um, at some point in time, they got boxed out. And uh, it's, it's definitely there. But it's good to see it open. I think a lot of folks have been wanting to build on top of it, expand on there and what they have. So interesting. In, in other, right. in, another article you wrote regarding platform was IBM's platform based on Watson delivering services. So it's, it's using the Watson IBM service platform for proactive automation and, and fixing issues, analyzing content, guiding people to, you know, resolving. Is, is that another example of a platform play where companies trying to use artificial intelligence to augment, you know, intelligence with? Yeah, I, I mean, well, you know, you know, IBM, they're going to put lots and damn near everything they have. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the move, the move make the move makes sense, though, right? Because if you're doing services, yeah, a lot of services is about automation now. Yes. And if they can work in Watson and all that, it works out pretty well. If you can cut out some workers, some business processes, make things smoother, it's Absolutely. all good. This is our discussion with Avi uh, on the, our first guest. I mean, think about if there's 50,000 dispatches a day and there are rating systems involved and uh, diagnostics and forensics information being exchanged, you're sitting on a ton of data. So apply some AI, machine learning to it, and find more optimal service delivery models. Uh, I, I think it's a, 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 a sector that's ripe for disruption in terms of how to best use technologies like AI. Hey, yeah, I, I, you know, and, and just to go back to that first Amazon rant point, why are we talking to dispatch? Because Amazon's just gonna kill them in the future anyway. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean? It's, it's a prime example of why we've gone batshit crazy over the Amazon thing. <laughs> and in this week's cybersecurity breach, who do we talk about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so. What, what about this thing in Verizon? We're about millions of Verizon customer records exposed in security laps. So what, what's yeah, going on? This was, this was one of our scoops by Zach Whitaker. And what it, what it shows more than anything, like numbers aside, Verizon says six, the researcher says 14 million. Um, what it really shows is that you have your first party data, but then you have these trusted partners that touch it. And you can't shut them out, right? Cause you got to get stuff done. But it just shows how the security chain, it, it's, you know, there's humans and then there's other companies and there's just a lot of folks going on here. Um, Thank you, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think the lesson here is it's not really a knock on Verizon or no. even nice cause it's like, one employee kind of screwed it up, but generally speaking, you have to watch your partners as much as you would watch your own data. Or just get rid of right? the humans. You'll be okay. Just get rid of the humans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's really, it's really like, I think the outcome I'd like to see from that Verizon story is that CIOs and CISOs and all those types, they actually look at it and go, all right, so how are we governing our partners? Yeah. Right. And what do they have going on, right? It's, it's one thing, like if you have, I don't know, you pick any supply chain, right? I mean, pick any, anything. 
the page is probably touched by a dozen companies. Oh yeah. Are they all in line with what you're doing or what you want? Um, so it gets very, you know, it's very tricky. So I think the big takeaway there isn't really like there's a takeaway larger than, you know, another week, another data breach. It's, yeah, it's really, you got to manage your partners. And as you talk about platform as a service, whether it's Workday or IBM or whomever, when other stakeholders are building capabilities on top of yours, yeah, there's going to be a ton of touch points. And does the security governance take to in, take in consideration the, the disparate set of practices that govern data security and privacy? Um, that, that's, a, that's a complex landscape. So um, I yeah. imagine there will be more scenarios like what we discovered here, again, as the platform economy grows. Um, speaking of CIOs, you did talk to, and you featured the CIO at Wendy's, David Tremon. He talked about, he said there was a line in your blog that said, and this was Tim talking, that if you do digital transformation right, it can create stickiness for the customer experience. What does that mean? It means they want customers and they want them to keep coming back, like every other company. Um, what's interesting that about that quote, of, though? Is that the promise of digital transformation? Just repeat business. At, at its at its core level, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, on the grand scale, you could. The problem I have with digital transformation is everybody's got a different definition. Yeah. It's digital transformation is a little like porn. You know it when you see it. And <laughs> other than that, it's a little fluffy vendor speech. <laughs> But it kind of is, right? It's or pick your pick your Supreme Court case, right? You know when you see it. Um, company does it well, right? When you go, oh, that's well done. That's probably digital transformation. Um, it's it's not. It, I don't think it's something you buy in a box from SAP or whoever. Right? I like two and of those. I like two of those. That's a trap we'll fall into. So, so are are self service kiosks? A cost-cutting measure, or is it really an element of digital transformation in the food industry? It's both. I mean, when you look at, I, I'll go into a fast food place right now, and I prefer a kiosk. Yeah, it's just faster. Yeah, right. And, and on the back there's end, there's still employees really cool. there. No, no yeah. but on the back end, it's really cool, right? Because what it does is it it sends the signals, it keeps the orders in check faster, it breaks down the queues, it, it does work. I mean. It, but I feel like they're playing catch up. McDonald's has all these kiosks, as you've seen them, or all popped up. These things are like, like seventy foot, like lead screen, like you know, seventy foot LCD screens that you just touch, right? Well, Popping up. Is, it has to be a Starbucks model. I want to order it on my mobile phone, get to the, to get to the inside the restaurant, pick it up, and go out. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's yeah. The the difference with Starbucks is Starbucks had a lead; they were out front. Absolutely. Now, now you're going. Now you're. Now we're seeing the level set where everybody's going to have a mobile app. Everybody's going to have a kiosk, and you know, like I have a Starbucks app. Am I going to get a Dunkin' Donuts app? Mm, maybe. Nah. I'll think about it though. It won't be a no-brainer. Are you a Dunkin' um, guy or a Starbucks guy? Yeah. No, no I have both. I'm both. I, admit, I have both. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do both. <laughs> Coffee, I'm probably more Dunkin'. I can't do Starbucks. It's just too strong. Yeah. Well, um, I just, the time. I just read an article. Uh, Folks that drink coffee three times a day live longer. Um, just let me know. I don't know. I think it was Time Magazine. <laughs> yeah. I, I drink coffee three times a day. I'm getting a headache. Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. One more. One more. Let's do SAP and uh, Leonardo IoT. So where do you see that going? 
is it is it all vaporware fluff? Is it the real deal, or is it like let's name a new platform every Sapphire? Well, I have I have AI name fatigue. <laughs> I, I think I think like who's winning? Male or for Salesforce, male, female, or gender Sales neutral? Got just, <laughs> right, Salesforce just got under the wire. Um, but you know what? Infor had Coleman this week, and now what, what's the other one? The other one was OpenText and Magellan. Magellan. Like I'm done. Stop naming shit. Just call it AI. I'm good. Um, Computer. What were we talking about after the AI name rant? Um, <laughs> Leonardo. SAP Leonardo. Just, just remember Einstein. Forget about the rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think directionally what SAP is doing with Leonardo makes a lot of sense. Um, I do like the fact they call it a digital innovation platform instead of digital transformation. That'll give them some protection when we all get sick of digital transformation. Um, <laughs> I'm very curious about the IoT stuff. I think it's interesting because they haven't, you know, they weren't out in front with their IoT stuff. Yet they control a lot of stuff through HANA and a lot of the analytics stuff. So I don't, it, it's, I don't, I'm not really sure. I mean, I get it conceptually, but I think the jury's still out on where it heads, right? It's not, it's not totally clear to me just yet. Well, I hope they control their indirect access issue, especially as we talk about things like IoT and all the other stuff that's happening with streaming analytics. So Right. Love the Leonardo gonna... name, though. <laughs> it's a great name. <laughs> My next dog might be named Leonardo. I don't know. <laughs> Instead of fetch, give it a Raspberry Pi call. <laughs> well, what, what, say, say you got... Say you got, say you had a really big yard. You got six puppies. You could all just name them after AI characters at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave it with that. We are with <laughs> Larry Dingen. You can follow him L D G L D I G N A N um, at ZDNet, uh, editor in chief, uh, commentator extraordinaire, and ready for the beach on a Friday. So thanks a lot for joining us. He's our number one choice as co-host of Disrupt TV. If either Ray and I are ever not able to make it, so you're terrific. Thank you're you, sir. Terrific. And Larry, we got to talk. Thanks a lot, point. guys. We got to talk at some point. We're going to announce. Have a good weekend. 150. So we'll chat yeah. with you. All right. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Woohoo! Oh my God, that is a fast hour at a rest stop here. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome, Ami and Scott and Larry. I mean, this is why Fridays. This is where the experts come and share. And uh, we've we've crossed over 160 guests on Disrupt TV in, in less than a year and a half. So we're really grateful for those who watch and share our content. Speaking of great content, next week we start again with an extraordinary CEO of one of the fastest growing startups in Canada, Michael Litt, co-founder and CEO of Vidyard. Um, and Michael is an extraordinary CEO and, and he'll be with us. We have Angela Zutabarn. He's She's the VP at Booz Allen Hamilton and co-author of the book, The Mathematical Corporation. So we're going to talk a lot about math and we'll continue the STEM discussions with Angela. And we end with John Lee, co-founder of Diginomica. So another jam-packed drop science uh, day next week for us on uh, Disrupt TV. Ray, closing remarks. And John is also a no-holds-barred no commentator yeah. as well. So we're like Larry. Like Larry. Yeah, like exactly. Larry. So we are at episode 71. Thanks, everyone. If you're a startup CEO, if you're a founder, if you're a CXO, and um, you want to share something, please reach out to us. We're happy. We're booking all the way out to September and October, but we definitely have a spot for you. So thanks a lot. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Safe drive, Ray. Talk to you. See you around. Bye. Bye.